Well, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 this morning. I want to give you a little pro tip real quick um, in case you were curious. If you want to become my favorite and my favorite church member, this is the secret ingredient right here. So in the past seven days, I've received six boxes of these. Um, So this will get me through the first week of December. So as you come over these next uh, successive weeks, please stop at Kroger on your way to church and buy me these. And I'll I'll go ahead and tell you, I like the chocolate and the vanilla, but after December 1st, the uh, chocolate become incredibly difficult to find. So if you see these and you want to become my favorite and get to the top of my prayer list, this is where you need to go, all right? Uh, Philippians chapter 2, and thankful that you're here this morning. Those watching online, thankful you guys are tuning in. Um, uh, Before we we get into Philippians today, um, I was just thinking about something this past couple days, just to encourage us. Uh, I know this is a weird season for our nation, uh, heading into the holidays, people are starting to get ill, and if you get the sniffles these days, we all just get scared, rightfully, with everything going on, and just so much in the midst of that. And If you've been around Living Hope for a while, you know I have certain catchphrases that I say all the time. Uh, uh, When I get about halfway through through a message, I always say I'm going to land the plane. You've probably heard me say that before. If I get excited about something, I say I'm going to take a lap. Um, But one of my my catchphrases that, that I feel like the Lord gave me about a year ago was that we're living in the middle of a miracle. And I really believe that. And yesterday, as we were painting in our house, I was in one of the spare bedrooms with my mom, and we were painting and just talking through 2020. And I said, you know what, Mom? I said, 2020, and the phrase I used, I said, 2020 has been a dumpster fire for the whole world. I said, but you know what? 2020 has been so good to our church. And just thinking back over this past year, what Jesus has done, you know, we've had new folks that have joined the church family Um, Jesus has given us this building right at the beginning of 2020 and uh, what this has transformed into to the glory of Jesus is just, man, what a story. Um, I I think back over this this past year when back in March we launched our YouTube channel just to get stuff live. And I told Thomas uh, this morning, I looked, our first live stream ever uh, at the peak, it hit 35 views. So it's been on YouTube now for like 10 months, and it's at like 35, 36 views. And last week, uh, the live stream that we had has just reached 170 views. And so how Jesus has just expanded that influence and the technology and the people that have been able to build that stuff. Um, I, I share this every week, but we were on, we're on the radio, on a secular radio station. And every, every Sunday morning, they're playing jingle bells, and then people are hearing the Word of God right after that. So many people tune into Christmas music this season on that one station, and if they tune in on Sundays, they're going to hear about Jesus too. Only God could do that kind of thing in 2020, you know, amidst of all of that. And then uh, to top it all off, and what's most exciting to me right now is the Finding Hope Center. Who, what kind of church that's a church plant launches a ministry center in 2020? You don't do that. We just try to survive in 2020. We're just trying to get to December 31st, you know, kind of a thing. We're just trying to make it to January. But Jesus was so kind to us. We raised the money for all the rent in in literally 30 days. The whole thing has been renovated. And in 2020, we're going to launch a ministry to minister to families across Northwest Columbus. So I'm like, move the chairs, man. I'm going to have to take a run around the room. Like, this is just, I'm telling you, the Lord is good And in the midst of this, we're going to talk about this in just a moment. 
in the midst of what is, you, you turn the news and the radio and it's just doom and it's gloom and you come to church and we have to wear these face covers. I can see it in your eyes when you come in, you're like, I hate this. Let me preach so I can take mine off kind of a thing. Jesus is still good and he's moving. I, I, told, I told Mark at the front door this morning, I promise we're going to get to Philippians 3 in a second. I said, I'm so thankful to live in a nation where I only have to deal with first world problems like a face covering. Jesus has allowed us to be born in this moment, in this time, at this place to make his name known amongst all people. Gracious, I'm glad I lived through 2020 because I wouldn't have wanted to miss this. Jesus is so good. Philippians chapter 3, we're starting a little two-part series in our joyful series. Uh, we're, we're talking about loss and gain. Paul spends several of these verses in the first part of Philippians 3, 11 verses, talking about this idea of loss and gain as a follower of Jesus. And I hope this speaks to you this morning. Um, if you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's Word, we're going to read the first seven verses here in Philippians chapter 3. And uh, then, then we'll see what the Lord has for us today. Paul writes these words to the church in Philippi. He says, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. If you didn't know in the Bible, if, if you see a phrase three times in a row, it means what was said was of utmost importance. Verse 3. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and we do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul gives his resume, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the, righteous that is, the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Verse 7, but everything that was a gain to me, I've considered it to be a loss because of Christ. Let me, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this day. God, thank you, Lord, that we can still gather Father, we can gather as the local church here in person, those joining us online, and we can celebrate Jesus in, in what has been such a tough year for so many. So many challenges coming at us left and right, so much darkness and gloom. We celebrate Jesus, and that's why we're here, because of Jesus. Lord, may that be the focus and affection of our hearts today is Jesus. God, would you soften us today, Lord? Give us soft hearts, open ears, hands and feet to walk with Christ as we leave here this morning. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to jump right in, y'all, because we got to do something important at the end of our service today and, and really just see, let's, let's see what the Lord has to, to tell us today on this idea of loss and gain. So look with me again at, at verse 1. It'll be on our screen as well. Paul writes to this church in Philippi. He says, in addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. If you were with us last week or you, you listened online, you saw that we ended chapter 2 talking about two gentlemen, two gentlemen, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And we asked that question of what will they say about you? What will they say about me when I'm gone? That was the halfway point of the book of Philippians. And now as we enter into chapter 3, we're starting the second half of the book. I think it's interesting. This is week 17 right now that we've been in Philippians. So if we're on track and we keep schedule, we'll actually finish the book of Philippians in August 2021. So we're going to be here a little bit, but we'll take little breaks in between. But pretty exciting to me that we've spent a year and a half in the book of Philippians, just verse by verse, walking through what God had to say. 
But right as we get to this halfway point, this, is, this verse 1 of chapter 3 could kind of just be seen as this marker in the ground. Paul has said so much, and he's going to say so much more. But in verse 1 of chapter 3, he gives us this incredible reminder. What did he say there? He said, rejoice in the Lord. What does that simply mean? Friends, this is the, going to be the most simple yet profound statement in all of the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord. It means we got to learn to find our joy in Jesus again. With, with COVID running, I hate talking about it, but we have to. With COVID running rampant, it's causing so many of us just weariness because it's just everywhere all the time. Rejoice in Jesus with the election stuff still lingering on and people fighting on both sides of the aisles and where you tune into, you hear all of these different perspectives and stories. Rejoice in Jesus. When, when health you know, runs rampant and your family is ill and people are passing away and there's so much surrounding you, Paul reminds us, rejoice in Jesus. When people are uncertain if they're going to have a job in the next month or the next two months, we're reminded, rejoice in Jesus. I was reminded of that this week because like you, I'm sure that stress has been mounting around your family. There, again, with Thanksgiving creeping up, Christmas around the corner, and so much is going on around us. Remember to rejoice in Jesus. When life is terrible, rejoice in Jesus. If you're defeated and you're discouraged, rejoice in Jesus. Because of Jesus, we can have joy. Because of Jesus, we can choose joy. That when circumstances may shake us, Jesus sustains us. We can have joy in Jesus. But then as you jump down to verse 2 here in Philippians chapter 3, Paul makes another transition. So verse 1 was kind of this stake in the middle of this letter, but then he transitions to the opposing side of rejoicing in Jesus, and it's the dangers of religion. You're probably thinking to yourself, how is rejoicing in Jesus and the dangers of religion? How are those opposing things? How are those opposite? Let me explain this to us real quick. So we're called as followers of Christ to rejoice in Jesus. We said that about 100 times. We think Jesus is a big deal. We praise Jesus, celebrate Jesus. We trust Jesus. What we're going to see in these next six verses that Paul warns us of here is this danger that can creep into our lives. This idea of how religion can creep into our lives, and rather than focus on Jesus and Jesus alone, we begin to take our eyes off of Jesus and onto all of these other things. These things that are insignificant and they don't matter, but we stake our entire worship and life in them as if they're the most important thing above all. Paul says, be careful. Rejoice in Jesus. Because what religion does is the ultimate core and ground level of religion is religion takes your focus off of Jesus and onto something else, most of the time, yourself. And we try to achieve things ourselves in some kind of weird way of trying to impress God. What relationship with Jesus does, what the gospel says, is Jesus impressed God for me. Now I worship Jesus in the good times, the bad times, the amazing times, and the rough times. There's There's a difference there. And Paul says, you got to choose to rejoice in Jesus or you have to choose to walk by religion. And the natural inclination for all of us, as we're going to see here in these next few verses, is to lean into religion. We love religion. We love religious things. Look at this with me. We're going to, a couple points if you're a note taker. Paul warns of the dangers of religion. Look at verse 2 again. 
We're going to look very specifically at these people that were in the church in Philippi, and then we'll bring all this together. Verse 2 again. Paul says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. So we left chapter 2 last week on a pretty high note of encouragement, but now we're entering into this harsh rebuke from Paul here. Who is he talking about when he talks about those who were dogs, evil workers, and mutilators of the flesh? Here's a little church history for you. In the church in Philippi, there was a group of false teachers that had slowly started to infiltrate. And they'd infiltrated a lot of these New Testament churches, and they were known as the Judaizers. If you like to take notes, write that down. They were the Judaizers. They were people that claimed that salvation was found in Jesus, but that was insufficient to save you. That should be a red alert for you right there. If anybody tells you that, Paul said in Galatians, if anybody preaches another gospel besides Jesus, let a curse be upon him. It's only Jesus. But the Judaizers, they claimed that you had to not only follow Jesus, but you also had to be Jewish. So you had to be a Christian, but also follow Jewish customs. If you claim to follow Christ, but you didn't engage in Jewish customs, Jewish traditions, and Jewish ceremonies, you were not really saved, and you didn't really follow Jesus. Specifically, and Paul brings it up here in these first couple verses, it came down to the issue of circumcision. You can read in the book of Acts, this was a tension point in the early church. You can read in the other letters that Paul wrote to these other churches. This was a tension point. Did you have to follow Christ and also be Jewish? And what these Judaizers were attempting to do was convince these believers that Jesus' work on the cross and His resurrection was not sufficient. You also had to be Jewish or you could not really be saved. Your salvation was incomplete if you were not also Jewish. They thought these physical acts somehow completed your salvation. It was a sign of their relationship with God. But look at how in verse 2 Paul describes them. Dogs, evil workers mutilators of the flesh. If you read that one phrase alone, you would know that this is an incredibly big deal to Paul, that he thinks this is some serious stuff going on. That phrase, uh, dog and evil worker, those are phrases that were used in that time to describe people that had like a depth of moral impurity. That, that, that what overflowed from them was, was just literally evil. They had terrible intentions, they had terrible character, and they were just overflowing with evil. Then he goes on to saying they're mutilators of the flesh. He says, you're engaging in a surgical procedure that you think somehow makes you holy, but it's done in vain. It doesn't really matter. He says, in light of the gospel, when you understand what Christ did on the cross, no matter what symbolic act you engage in, all you're doing is mutilating yourself in an attempt to reach holiness. You're like, dang, I'm glad I came to church today. I know we're talking about circumcision and Jews and all this crazy stuff. But Paul's language here is this is a big deal. Why is it such a big deal? Because you can kind of read that and you're like, who cares? Just go and be Jewish and love Jesus. It doesn't matter. Why was this such a big deal that they were pushing people to engage with these Jewish customs? I think we need to ask a different question. Why is religion, when I say religion, it's this works-based pursuit of God. It's like when we take worship away from Jesus and put it on these other things. Why is religion so dangerous? Friends, hear these two thoughts this morning. This is, man, this is so important in our culture. Religion is dangerous because it belittles the work of the cross and it elevates the work of man. My goodness. Religion is dangerous because it belittles the work of the cross and elevates the work of man. If we had the ability in and of ourselves to save ourselves from our own sin, then the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was not necessary and it was done in vain. 
If there was something I could do to save myself from my sin, then Jesus died with no purpose. If my ability to a right standing with God was, was my uh, ableness to accomplish the law, to meet God's standard perfectly, then Jesus didn't have to die. Jesus didn't have to resurrect. It was an invalid attempt. He didn't have to do it. Let me show you a little formula here. I saw this years ago. It'll, it'll be up here. And I, this is, helps me see things better. It's this. Jesus plus something equals religion. This is so dangerous. Jesus plus something equals religion. It's Jesus plus Jewish customs is religion. Jesus plus... Dang it. Get ready for emails. Jesus plus voting this way equals religion. Jesus plus this equals religion. Jesus plus these views on certain issues equals religion. Jesus plus this. If you don't think the way I do about this issue, you're not really saved. If you don't believe the way I do about certain issues, you're not really saved. It's Jesus plus something. That's always religion. And Paul says, run from that. It's not Jesus plus anything. If we try to add anything to salvation, you have to believe this way, think this way, do this way. It's, Paul says, no, 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 it's Jesus. We believe in Jesus. We put our faith in Jesus. When Jesus crawled onto that cross, his sacrifice was perfectly sufficient to cover our sin debt and appease the wrath of God. There's nothing we can do to make it any better. It's all about Jesus. Religion in its purest form, whether it's becoming Jewish or any other thing we want to add to Jesus, is ultimately just religion, and it's a vain attempt of trying to get people to God. We can't. It's Jesus. Let me give you another formula. This is so helpful. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. It's just Jesus. That's who it's about. It's all Jesus. It's none of these other things. Now, when I get to know Jesus, what's going to happen? Often those other things are going to overflow from me. Do you have to come to church and worship to get saved? No, you don't have to. But will you because you love Jesus? Absolutely. Do you have to read your Bible every day to get saved? No, that's religion. But will you? Yeah, because you love Jesus. Do you have to do certain things, go certain places, uh, believe certain things? I need to be careful. Believe certain things about certain topics? No. But you know what happens when you start to fall in love with Jesus? You will. Because Jesus changes you. And when Jesus changes you, it changes everything. We don't do those things, engage in those things. We don't participate in all this because we're religious. We do it because we love Jesus. And we're falling in love with Jesus more and more. And it compels me to do those things. Let me go off script for a second. When I first met my wife 11 years ago, I lived my life trying to impress her in those early days. Do you all remember those days when you first met your spouse? I remember when I first met Liz. It was at a cornhole tournament I was putting together. You know, cornhole boards are heavy, and I didn't used to be as, like, amazing muscular as I am now, all right? Let's just say it, right? Aaron the mountain. Um, and I remember so vividly at Ohio University in Lancaster, I was trying so hard to impress her. I'd known her for, like, 15 minutes, where I tried to carry two sets of cornhole boards, one under each arm, just in a vain attempt of hoping that she would somehow see me and think I'm awesome. I can remember as we went on our first date, we ended up going to a, a restaurant, a park, and church, obviously, right? First date, four and a half hours together. If you know me, I'm an extreme introvert. I can enter a room and leave it, never say a word, and be perfectly fine. 
four and a half hours, I never shut up. Why? Because I just wanted to impress her. I was a youth pastor at the time, and I would always have to set up and tear down for church events. And I, can, I, was, I was so young and so immature. And I wanted to impress Liz, my girlfriend. So I was the guy at the church events. You've probably seen the meme before on social media where I had like five chairs under each arm, and you're just kind of like waddling around, just hoping that maybe she saw me. Maybe she did. You know what every relationship ultimately has to make a transition to? Impressing someone to knowing someone. You know a relationship that's constantly built on impressing another person will never survive? Because you always have to up the ante. But when a relationship makes a transition from impressing someone to knowing someone, all of a sudden it begins to go deep. And you know what happens? Rather than always trying to impress my now wife, I don't have to do that anymore. But now I know her and I'm getting to know her and I'm learning to know her more and more every single day. And what naturally overflows from me? I want to do things that impress her because I love her and I want to show her that. So you come over to my house and I'm going to be in front of the sink doing dishes, right? Because I want to impress my wife and I want her to know how much I care. You're going to see me, part of it's because I'm OCD and I love clean things. You're going to see me in there vacuuming all the time. Why do I do that? I want to impress her. I want her to come downstairs and see that I care and that I love her. You see, impressing someone is religion. The other is relationship. That's the difference Paul's making here. We don't try to impress God. God doesn't care about that. No, no, no. It's Jesus. Jesus already impressed God. Jesus already like, made the sufficient sacrifice on our sake. And now the overflow of our lives is doing things that show God how much we love him, how much we care about him, and how much we want to get to know him. C.S. Lewis once said that we're rebels who must lay down our arms. We're enemies that were declared righteous by God. We were fighting our God, and God died for us. Jesus accomplished everything necessary for my salvation. Therefore, I don't have to add anything to it. My works can't save me, Paul reminds us, but Jesus saves. Look at verse 3 with me again. Verse 3. Paul says, for we are the circumcision. I'm sorry, this is verse, yeah, it's verse 3. We are the circumcisions, the one who worship by the Spirit of God. We boast in Christ Jesus. We don't put confidence in our flesh, although we have reasons for confidence in the flesh. Paul doesn't give the Judaizers any credit here. He gave them one verse. And then he points back to the sufficiency of Jesus he says, look here, he says, Judaizers, I need you all to understand something. Church in Philippi, you need to understand something. Your customs, all those things that you're choosing to do, they weren't necessary. Paul says it's, it's about Jesus. I'm probably going to say Jesus 1,000 times this morning. And if you go to a church where that doesn't happen, leave, just so you know. Jesus is a big deal. Paul says, don't be dependent upon the physical work to get saved. Your salvation is secure in Christ. But he uses a couple phrases here. First, Paul says, we are the circumcision. Your, your Bible translation might say that we are the true circumcision. That's a reference to a spiritual change that happens in our hearts when the Spirit dwells inside of us. Romans chapter 2 says this, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but then look at this phrase, verse 28 of Romans 2. True circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. All right? On the contrary... A person is a Jew who is one inwardly in circumcision of the heart. How does circumcision of the heart happen? By the Spirit, not the letter. 
Paul makes that simple reminder for us here in Romans that God is the one who justifies us. Nothing we do, not even that circumcision of a Jew. Paul says it doesn't matter. No, true circumcision happened in the heart. Look at, look at again at verse 3. Paul says we're the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. What's he doing? He's pointing it back to Jesus. We boast in Jesus. He's pointing it back to Jesus. He says we don't put confidence in our flesh. He's pointing it back to Jesus He says, nothing we do to impress God. It's all about Jesus, not your religious activity. None of those things. None of it impresses God. Jesus impresses God. So let Jesus dwell in you. Let Jesus live through you. Glorify Jesus with your life and God will smile upon you. But then notice how he transitions. Joe, I need a rag, man. I'm getting excited this morning. Paul says, look, if we're going to put our religious track records on display, I win. You, you ever done that where somebody tries to impress you or like, oh, I've accomplished this. And you're like, shut up, I'm better than you. That's what Paul does here. The Judaizers are infiltrating Philippi. They're infiltrating Galatia. They're infiltrating Ephesus. And Paul writes these letters and he's like, they think they're awesome. Let me show you my resume just so we're clear. Look at what he says here, the, the credentials of Paul. We're going to walk through these real quick. Verse 5. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. We're talking about circumcision a lot today. I'm going to get fired. Again, this Jewish custom. You did this if you were an obedient Jew, if you had a baby. Uh, if you were an obedient Jewish family, you would have your child circumcised on the eighth day. It was a sign of their heritage as, as a Jew. This was handed down from Abraham. So if you don't know that whole story, Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. He's the father of Israel. God made a covenant with him, the Abrahamic covenant, right? And so this is just passed down from the the Jews, and it's just what you did if you were a good Jew. So Paul says, I'm a good Jew. If we're going to talk about Jewishness, I got it together. He says, I am a Jew by covenant. I've entered into the covenant with God because I was circumcised on the eighth day. Then he keeps going, verse 5. He says, I'm of the nation of Israel. Again, this is important. He's not only Jewish by covenant because of circumcision. Paul says, I'm also Jewish by birth. Many of the Judaizers, these people that were claiming salvation in Jesus plus Jewishness, they were not born Jewish. They were Gentiles by birth, non-Jews. And then they would proselytize. That's a fancy way of saying convert to Judaism. So they would claim Jewishness. Paul says, well, me, I have a Jewish mom and a Jewish dad, plus I've engaged in the heritage of Judaism through this covenant with God of circumcision. I'm better than you. Then he keeps going. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. If you're familiar with the Old Testament history and the story, Abraham, father of the Jews, Genesis chapter 12, Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac then had a son who had a uh, named Jacob. We see later in the book of Genesis that Jacob, his name was changed to Israel. Jacob had 12 sons known as the 12 tribes of Israel. That's where all Jews trace their heritage back to. Of those 12 tribes, there was one tribe that was known as the ranking tribe. They were the privileged tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel. That was the tribe of Benjamin. They had special benefits throughout the Old Testament because they were from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, one in particular in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9, the very first king over Israel, Saul. Do you remember what tribe he was from? Benjamin. There's other examples we could talk through, but we don't have time today. So Paul says, I have this symbolic covenant with God. I'm of Jewish bloodline. 
I'm from the ranking tribe of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. Then he keeps going. I'm a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Again, this is a bloodline thing. This is important in this culture. I got a Jewish mom. I got a Jewish dad. So I am full-blooded Jewish. Some of you have heritage in other countries where you're full-blooded Irish and maybe you're full-blooded German. Paul says, I am full-blooded Jew. Here's what's interesting. These first four things that Paul tells us about his heritage. Those were things he was born into that many of the Judaizers didn't have because they, they converted to Judaism. So this was a big deal. But these next ones that Paul tells us, these are things that he accomplished personally. He says, so not only was I like amazingly Jewish, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but I was like amazingly Jewish. He says, on top of that, I accomplished some pretty amazing things for a Jewish human being. What does he say? He says, I was a Pharisee. If you don't know what a Pharisee is, it was this zealous religious group that was born out of the 400 years known as the intertestamental period. So it's that gap that we see from the book of Malachi to Matthew where God was silent. This was a group of religious people that had kind of risen up and they had become very zealous for the law. To the, again, we've talked about this before where they made laws upon laws in order to keep the law. They wanted to be so obedient to God that religion had infiltrated their hearts. They tried to live at the utmost perfections, so zealous for everything. And they were really the esteemed group. Like if you were religious, you were a Pharisee. You had gone through the ranks, you had done all the studies, you met all the qualifications, and you were the top tier of Jewishness in this day. And Paul says, that's what I was. I'm from the bloodline, I'm from the heritage, but not only that, I accomplished this religious position because of all my personal endeavors. Then he goes on, verse 6, persecuting the church. We read that and we're like, Paul, that's not good. Think about it from Paul's perspective, though, in the book of Acts. Paul was standing up and destroying what he believed was a perversion of God's plan. When Paul was uh, persecuting the church and locking people up and destroying that, Paul was destroying what he thought was a perversion of God's intended plan with the Jewish people, a plan for the nation of Israel. So in the eyes of a Jew, that would have been a good thing. Paul says, I was zealous. I was trying to keep Judaism pure and keep it undefiled. Verse 6, he says, I was blameless in the law. What does that mean? From what Paul understood, Paul practiced. God's word said it, Paul did it. Paul says, in me, from what I knew and understood, you could find no wrong because I had devoted my life to it. If you were to come up with a resume of the perfect Jew, this was it. From the bloodline, he had the parents, he practiced the right symbolic exercises, he became the top religious tier, Paul did everything right. And when these Judaizers are trying to flash how amazing they are, and they say, we follow Jesus, but we're also Jewish, Paul says, friends, if anybody can brag, it's me. I can brag because I've accomplished everything. But look at verse 7, and this is where we're close, the value of Jesus. Paul says, everything that was a gain to me I considered it a loss because of Jesus. Paul says, everything I accomplished was a loss because of Jesus. Anything that I could add to my salvation was a loss because of Jesus. It was worthless. It doesn't compare. Because Paul reminds us, when you understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, Jesus surpasses everything. 
Jesus, the perfect sinless Son of God, voluntarily dying on a cross for His enemies, when we begin to understand that, we understand salvation. One more formula for us today. It's this. Everything minus Jesus is nothing. Doesn't matter. I don't care what... Doesn't matter. I don't care what you've accomplished. It doesn't matter where we stand on anything. It doesn't matter what we try to bring into our lives to elevate ourselves above other people. I've accomplished this. You've accomplished that. We've done this. You've done that. I believe this. You believe that. All these crazy things. I've, I've succeeded in this area. I, man, I read my Bible 26 times a week. I go to church. I've never missed a Sunday. Uh, man, I, I do all of these amazing things. I'm so holy. I'm so amazing. I'm better than everybody around me. If you don't think like I do, you don't believe like I do, you're a terrible person. And we start to make our lists just like Paul did. And Paul says, you get to the very end of your list of everything you've accomplished and how amazing you are. And he says, guess what? In comparison to Jesus, it's nothing. It's religion. Paul says, Jesus is everything. Not us. We're not our own saviors. It's all Jesus. There's nothing you can do to impress God. Everything I do now is not to impress God. It's an overflow of worship because Jesus impressed God for me. We boast in Jesus. Everything else is just a bonus. It's all Jesus. What was the very first verse? And we're done. Hey, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's all about Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for your word. I pray it wouldn't fall on deaf ears today, God. I pray it would move us and motivate us. God, may I pray it would soften us. I pray it would compel us to love better. I pray it would compel us to worship more. I pray it would motivate us to love our spouses better, to love our children better. I pray it would cause us, Lord, to love our church better. God, not out of duty or religious activity, but out of the overflow, the abundance of understanding that Jesus is everything. And that's what moves us. That's what motivates us. Because we just we want to let Jesus know how worthy he is because of everything he's done. Anything we can do is pales in comparison to Jesus. God, I pray now as we sing that it would be a sweet sound to heaven. Lord, would you lean your ear over from your throne and hear our voices sing to you today? God, we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.